Our passage this afternoon is Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a beautiful psalm about the King of Glory, our Lord Jesus. And so it's about his creation and his kingdom in heaven and his kingdom on earth. It's one of the really clear, what are called messianic psalms about Jesus. It prophesies about Jesus. I remember a teaching that Dave Reed, Dave Reed did on exclusive psalmody uh, quite a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago. And it was kind of an apologetic teaching, and he was responding to specific objections that he knew of when it comes to singing psalms exclusively in worship. And the one objection that I remember, it kind of sticks with me, was that, was that when we worship with the psalms, we never actually take the name Jesus on our lips. Because, of course, the, the name Jesus was not actually used in the Psalter. The authors of the Psalms were not given his name. No one was until it was revealed to Mary just months before Jesus was born. And this is not an apologetic sermon, but Psalm 24 provides a great response to the objection that we don't use the name Jesus as we sing the Psalms in worship. We don't. But we refer to Jesus and all of his works of salvation in such marvelous and creative ways in the Psalms, like Psalm 24. One of my um, favorite hymns about Jesus, written just a few hundred years ago, um, doesn't mention him by name either. But listen to how beautifully these words praise Jesus. This was, uh, this was written by John Newton, the same, same guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has washed us with his blood. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Psalm 24 is about the Savior who has washed us with his blood and lavished upon us all the benefits of salvation and brought us near to God. So let me now read Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, 
that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Well, you can see and we can see by the heading that uh, Psalm 24 is a psalm of David. Many commentators think that Psalm 24 was written uh, for the occasion when the ark was moved from the house of Obed-Edom to the tabernacle in Jerusalem, which is why we read about that in 2 Samuel just now. And that certainly does make sense because clearly that was a grand occasion. There was a lot of preparation put into the day. The very symbol of God's presence was being carried into the city. And so it makes sense to compose a psalm specifically for the occasion. And twice, we hear the phrase, Lift up your heads, O gates, that the King of glory may come in. So maybe that was the occasion that prompted David to write Psalm 24. But you know, David was a prophet. And there was another occasion when the true king of glory entered the city of Jerusalem in the flesh. It was on what we call Palm Sunday, and James Montgomery Boyce makes this interesting historical observation. According to ancient rabbinical sources in the Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week, which is our Sunday. So in God's providence, about the same time that Jesus was mounted on a donkey, entering the city of Jerusalem as a king, and the people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The priests in the temple are reciting or singing, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So with that context, let's look closer at the psalm itself. The opening verses of the psalm start out talking about God's relationship to the whole world, not just Israel, not just Jerusalem. It's looking at the entire world. It begins with this powerful assertion that the whole world and all the inhabitants of the earth belong to God. He is the creator of earth, and all the wonders of the planet are his doing. Let me read the first two verses and then talk more about them. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. These first two verses point to at least two things. First, we should just marvel when we think about creation, specifically when we think about our planet, which is the part of creation we probably know the most. It is just full of wonders. And it's full of God's wisdom and power and knowledge and amazing design. And it's worthy of time spent just thinking about it, just marveling about it. I was thinking about that 
over the last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this um, this psalm, and I was reminded of a um, time about 25 years ago. I did a preceptorship, and it was uh, I was working for a big pharmaceutical company, and the um, we were coming out with a new cardiovascular drug. It was a calcium channel blocker, which are still used for hypertension and angina. Anyway, um, we were coming out with this product, and um, that was the first time that my company had ever come out with a drug for, for uh, cardiologists or for the heart. And um, the company spent a great deal of time and money and preparation training us. And one of the things that they did that was unusual, but again, since it was a new therapeutic area, they sent every single salesperson, sales manager, and sales director in the country to a preceptorship. And what that was is they, they, uh, they um, uh, set up with uh, cardiology groups all around the country, and they would send teams of salespeople to those cardiology groups, and they sent them a, a curriculum that they wanted them to teach so that we would learn about treatment of heart disease, diagnosis of heart disease, different therapies that are used, and why one would be chosen over another, and that sort of thing. Anyway, I actually did my preceptorship at Penrose Hospital with a local group who is still in practice, at least some of the guys are still in practice. It was Dr. Barber and Jalowick and uh, Kleiner and a few others. Anyway, um, I still remember the, um, we were doing a session with one of the doctors who focuses on what he called the electrical system of the heart. And he said, he said, cardiologists are kind of in two groups. There's the plumbers and there's the electricians. And um, he explained that the plumbers are the guys who work on the coronary arteries, which are the big blood vessels that carry blood to your heart. Very important. It has to happen all the time. And uh, he called those the, the plumbers. And then he, he was talking about his own particular subspecialty, which was the electrical side, which is the pacemaker of the heart, sends the electrical signal to the heart, causes the heart to beat, and um, obviously a, another very key part of uh, the design of the heart. And he was talking about the, um, this, he was particularly focused on the left ventricle. I don't want to get too technical here, but that's the largest chamber in your heart. And the left ventricle is the, vent, the, the chamber from which blood is expelled out of your heart into systemic circulation. So that's the big chamber, that's the strongest part of the, the heart, uh, key in terms of getting blood to, into circulation. And he was describing the shape of it in this electrical system, and he said, he said the way it works is you've got this kind of a V-shaped um, uh, vessel and the pacemakers at the top, it sends a signal to the bottom of the ventricle. And what happens is it, it, it contracts starting from the bottom of the ventricle up and the valves at the very top. So you get this movement like this so that virtually every drop of blood that's in that ventricle is pumped into external, uh, into a, systemic circulation with every beat of the heart. And when you consider that that happens 60, 80, 100, 150 times a minute, depending on what you're doing, um, that's pretty amazing. And so he, he kind of walks us through this and the, this idea that the pacemaker sends a signal and it just knows it comes up. And he's, we're all sort of marveling honestly at it. And he turns around and he looks at us and he says, it's like it was designed. And... Um, it, it, it was, I, I don't know if the guy's a Christian or not, but he clearly sees this amazing, clear design in one of the things that he knows more about than almost anybody. And I think one of the things I noticed in 
over, over the years is that you, the closer you look, the more you know about the wonders of this planet, the more your mouth is just falls open in wonder. Um, and I know this is not going to get me elected to any school boards, but I think that text, science textbooks should open with praise to God and close with doxology to God because everything in between is telling about his wonders. Okay, so that's the, um, that's the first part of that. And then secondly, these verses that I read, the first two verses of uh, Psalm 24, they're a very interesting Old Testament allusion to the fact that God's love, as expressed in the gospel of his son, is for all people. It's not just for the nation of Israel or for the city of Jerusalem. That love that will be expressed in his son is for the whole world, every tribe, nation, under heaven. That fact was actually very difficult to, um, to, to fully grasp for if you lived and grew up in the nation of Israel. In fact, uh, Jesus' own disciples struggled with that. And um, I'm going to read for you from the first chapter of Acts. The, um, this is the last interaction that Jesus' disciples had with him right before he was ascended into heaven. And you'll see that they're still thinking there's a, there's a national focus of the gospel, which Jesus disabuses them of with, uh, with this. I'll be reading uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's going to be for the end of the earth. Um, so anyway, that was a difficult concept to, uh, to understand. So those first two verses tell us that God is the creator of everything that we see and observe. And he cares about all of his children from every tribe and nation on earth. But then our eyes are lifted higher as we continue in the psalm. It asks the question, who dares to come into the presence of the God of creation? Again, James Montgomery Boyce has some wonderful commentary on this section. And he says, the answer to this question is, is found in verses 3 through 6. And the answer is very complete and very profound. Let me read that again, the verses 3 through 6 for you. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. First, these three verses look at the heart of the true worshiper. Verse 3 asks the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And verse 4 answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. To have a pure heart 
refers to inward holiness. It's what Jesus was speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Clean hands suggest good deeds and not evil deeds. The line that says, Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, suggests the child of God worships the true God and not idols. And the line that says, He does not swear deceitfully, describes one who has a right relationship with others. He is an honest person. He's not false. And the Lord knows we don't do all these things perfectly, and we certainly aren't saved on the basis of our doing them. But God's children pay attention to these things, and we long to have them be true of us. Amazingly, they become more true of us in time. Think about how this agrees, for example, with what Paul says in Romans 6.4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. And then we come to verse 5, which is really kind of the key to understanding this whole section. Verse 5 says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is an Old Testament allusion to what Paul writes in Romans when he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Boyce makes this point that it might be easier to understand this particular passage, these three verses and previous to that, if we were to take the verses in inverse order. Something like this. Start with the second half of verse 5 and say, he will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's our justification. We receive that from the Lord. That's not from us. We look away from ourselves for that. And then go on to the first part of the verse, which says, he will receive blessing from the Lord, which is why we begin to desire clean hands and a pure heart. It's why we want to worship God and not idols. It's why we care about loving our neighbor and dealing honestly. This is our sanctification. And, and Charles Spurgeon has a very pithy comment for verse 6. The, the verse says this, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Spurgeon changes that to this. He says this could read, Such is the regeneration of those who seek him. That's our regeneration. That's from God. And then we come to the final section, which is verses 7 through 10, that speak so powerfully about the king of glory entering the city. Let me read that again one more time. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, 
that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We've already spoken about this um, section and we've looked at some of the possible references. This could refer to the ark being carried into the city. and Maybe that's when it was written. However, it certainly points to Jesus triumphantly entering the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But none of these fully explain what is being spoken of here. This is about a conquering king coming back into the city after some amazing victory on the battlefield. Notice the military language. Verse 8 says, Who is this king of glory? And the answer, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So what battle might this be referring to? One of the Puritans, John Gill, writes, The Lord, mighty in battle, as he was when he was up on the cross, when he made an end to sin, spoiled principalities and powers, abolished death, and destroyed him that had the power of it. Well, that's the battle that's being talked about here. And the city is the heavenly city. Speaking of this, Matthew Henry writes, we may apply it to the ascension of Christ into heaven and the welcome given to him there. The gates of heaven must then be opened to him. Those doors that may truly be called everlasting. Our Redeemer found them shut, but having by his blood made atonement for sin and gained a title to enter into the holy place. As one having authority, he demanded entrance, not for himself only, but for us. For as the forerunner, he has for us entered and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Let me um, suggest a key application in our lives. Jesus has, by enduring the torture and mocking and humiliation and, of course, death on the cross, he has earned the right to march into heaven unopposed. But he doesn't do that with his brothers and sisters. He speaks tenderly to us. He woos us. <clears throat> he entreats us. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, we sometimes hold Jesus at arm's length, don't we? He wants too much. We're like the very well-off taxpayer who's in the 50% tax bracket, and we say, come on, I'm paying 50% of everything I make already. And Jesus says, I don't want half of you. I want all of you. And for those of you who have never looked to Jesus to be your champion, to be the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord for you, Think about making that journey without him. <clears throat> Are your hands clean? Are they always clean? Have they always been clean? Is your heart pure, completely pure? 
Do you live by the golden rule and do you love your neighbor as much as, as you love yourself all the time? Maybe you're confident that you're as good or maybe a bit better than those around you. But people around you are not the standard. Jesus said, <clears throat> you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard to ascend the hill of the Lord. On the other hand, Jesus desires that you come to him and believe his testimony and place your faith in him as your representative. He tells you in Matthew 11:28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And let me, let me close by returning to our call to worship. The Lord is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. <clears throat> he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful as your children. <clears throat> we recognize that our salvation from beginning to end has been accomplished for us. We recognize that that our good deeds are filthy rags, and so we look away from ourselves and to Christ for everything. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your gospel, the sweetness of it, the, um, the fact that it's all through your scriptures. It's everywhere if we look for it. And Father, I do thank you for the way you have saved us and provided for us, the way you continue to provide for us, the way you continue to work out our salvation with us in our sanctification. Father, give us a greater sense of our union with Jesus. For we cannot justify ourselves and we can't sanctify ourselves. We look to our union with Jesus to delight in serving you. We look to our union with Jesus to know how to pray. We look to our union with Jesus to love one another as we should. And Father, I do pray that you would cause your word to be blessed. I pray, Father, that you would uh, bless the rest of this Lord's Day, this day of worship. I thank you for this chance to come together and worship. And we do pray all of these things, Father, knowing that you hear us. In Jesus' name, 